Welcome to Gospel in Life. People around the world understand the word gospel to mean good news, but it's much more than a message of salvation. The gospel is also a comprehensive worldview that can shape how we understand ourselves, others, and the world around us. Today, Tim Keller is delving into the underlying implications of the gospel and how it truly changes everything. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for our email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles from Dr. Keller as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com. Scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 22 to 31. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, then he's boasting, it is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law, the word of the Lord. So, hi. I'm reminded of uh, Henry V on the Battle of Agincourt when he looked at everyone and he said, we few, we happy few. We band of brothers and sisters. So we have a great thing to do tonight. We're taking a look at one of the passages that one was just read to you that Martin Luther thinks uh, is the greatest single place in the Bible that explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He might be right. Because it's talking about three great gospel words. Uh, one of them actually doesn't appear in this translation, but I'll explain it to you. The three great gospel words are redemption, propitiation, and justification. If you take a look at the heart of this passage, in verse 24, it says, we all need redemption. In verse 25, it says, and in response to that, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, and the older word was propitiation. I'll get back to that. And then at the, near the bottom, it says, <clears throat> as a result, we receive justification. Now, those are three tremendous great gospel words. What's our problem? What do we need? Redemption. What does God do about it? Propitiation. And what do we get as a result? Justification. Three tremendous gospel words, and it's ridiculous that I'm going to try to unpack all three of them now. 
On the other hand, you guys don't have anything to do afterwards. I know you don't, so we could stay here for hours, but I probably won't do that. Instead, I'd like to, let's, let's unpack each of these words. Verse 24, uh, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore, it says, we need the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, the word redemption means to be bought out of slavery. It means a price is paid to buy us out of slavery. And we might say, well, you know, we don't have slavery around here. Well, you have to understand that the word redemption is an economic word, and its background is in ancient times there was no bankruptcy law. So that if you fell into debt and you couldn't pay your debt and you were in violation of the law because you had made a legal contract to pay and now you can't pay your debt, what did you do? Well, and sometimes you would lose your land and you would have to farm it as a tenant farmer before, until you paid, paid the debt. Sometimes you did become a slave and what we would call an indentured servant today. But see, modern people today don't have bank, we don't have debtor's prisons. Uh, we don't have indentured servanthood. So we say, well, we don't have uh, those things. And yet, any of you who have been under a huge weight of debt, a huge load of debt, you know that your freedom is compromised always by debt. Your freedom is always compromised. There's many things you can't do unless you get that debt off of you. And, and if you can't do it, if you just don't have the wherewithal to, to, uh, to pay your debt, there's no hope for you. You will never be free unless someone comes from outside and pays that debt for you. Now, Paul, of course, is using a, you know, an economic word, but he's using it uh, to apply to all human beings. He said we all need redemption. So he's not talking at this point about the economic. He's talking about the spiritual moral. He's saying that all human beings need to be redeemed. How so? Well, the whole Bible talks about this, and I will just briefly um, summarize. That's all I can do. Uh, we need to be redeemed from guilt. Uh, all human beings know at some level we're not living the way we ought to live. You know, in ancient times, people were guilt-wracked, and supposedly now in modern times, we're not. You know, we say, hey, I have to decide what is right or wrong for me. You can't lay your guilt trip on me. And yet, all human beings at some deep level know that we're not who we should be. We're not the people we should be. We all have a sense of condemnation of some kind. Uh, and, uh, you know, Samuel Johnson, uh, the, you know, the great British writer, uh, in, in his biography, we're told, it was the 18th century now, that when he had been a little boy, when he'd been a boy, I don't know how little he was, when he was a boy, his father, who ran a bookstall on the Oxeter uh, public square. At Oxeter was an English town, uh, and his father, on certain days of the week, ran a bookstall. He sold books. And one day he came to Samuel and said, I can't be there, I want you to go there for two hours, make sure nobody steals the books, you know, people pay for the books, I want you to attend my bookstall in, uh, at the Oxeter market for two hours. And he never went. And that always bothered him all of his life. But as he got older, and this is after his father was dead, after he got older, uh, the memory of what he did there became symbolic. It symbolized all the ways in which he had failed to be a good son. But not only that, it, it started to symbolize all the ways he hadn't been a good person, all the ways in which he'd failed to be the person he should have been. And it's a very famous incident. In fact, if you go to Ad Oxeter's uh, public, you know, town square, you'll actually see a little um, plaque there or a monument there. 
one day in the driving rain, his guilt got to him, in the driving rain, he walked to the marketplace and stood in the place where decades before his father's bookstall used to be and stood there in the pouring rain bareheaded for two hours. A kind of penance to deal with his guilt. Didn't work. We need redemption. I mean, once we know we haven't done what we should do, you, you can't go back somehow. I mean, there's no way to pay for that. We need redemption. We need, we need to be freed from our guilt. We also, one more thing, we actually need to be freed from what I'll call heart slave masters. Now think about this. Because we all have a sense that we do not live as we ought to live, we try to find ways uh, to, to shore up our sense that we do deserve to be here, that we, we are earning our way in a sense, that we that we are significant, we are worthwhile. So, for example, uh, Sidney Pollack, who was a great, um, uh, you know, Hollywood producer, uh, director, he, was, he made a lot of films. Near the end of his life, when he was very sick, and he kept wanting to make films, and people said, why do you need to keep making films? You know, you made great films, you've won Oscars, you, uh, you, know, you know, why do you have to keep going? And he actually said, at one point, he, he actually said, Every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. He wasn't joking. In other words, unless I make a really good picture that really helps people and really does good, then I feel like, okay, I've earned my stay. You remember um, um, Harold Abrams in Chariots of Fire? You know, he's trying to get the gold medal in the Olympics, and they, uh, somebody asks him, why are you working so hard for athletic uh, glory? And he says, uh, he, was, he was running the 100-yard dash, so he said, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's the same thing Sidney Pollack is trying to say. I, I do what I do to justify, I mean, it's my justification. It's, I don't just make movies, it makes me feel that I'm okay, that I'm, I, I belong here. I'm not just running you know, the race, I'm doing it not just because it's a good thing, I need it, it's my justification. It's my way of dealing with this deep down sense that I'm not what I should be. But let me tell you what happens if you take your job or you take a, a romantic relationship. And that's not just, a, those things sometimes aren't good things, they become your justification. They become why I feel that I, I belong here. They become my, my sense that this is why I can respect myself, this is why other people should respect me because I'm this or I have this, because this person loves me, because I've accomplished this in life, because I have this career, because I've made this much money. When you make those things your justification, here's what I want you to consider. Uh, if you displease a boss, what can your boss do? Reprimand you? Yeah. Fire you? Yeah. But if you displease a slave master, what can a slave master do? He can beat you to a pulp. He has no boundaries, see? There's no boundaries on a slave master. If you don't do, if you break up with somebody and you're sad, that's one thing. If you break up with somebody and you want to throw yourself off a bridge. If you don't do well in your career and you're sad, that's one thing. If you don't do well in your career and you just feel like I've got no meaning in life, I feel like I feel terrible, I'm hating, hating myself, I'm beating myself up, you know what that is. Your career or that relationship, these things, they're your slave masters. You need to be redeemed. But you see, they go together. Unless we're redeemed from our guilt, we can't be redeemed from the slave masters that run our lives. 
So, for, in, and I could go on. The Bible actually says your bodies need to be redeemed because they're actually uh, enslaved to decay and to death, and someday God has to redeem our bodies. So we need redemption. All right? Well, then what does God do? Secondly, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And I, I said, if you go to the older translations, uh, here it, it translates a particular Greek word, sacrifice of atonement, but it's actually only one word, and it's the word helastrion. And the older translations uh, translated it, God presented Christ as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood. Now, the word propitiation, I understand why they didn't use the word. It's partly because it's actually an old word, an old English word, and not that many people use it anymore, so it's not very well known. But you can, you know, you can almost parse it a little bit. See the word pro and pity in there? Propitiation always means to turn aside someone's wrath. Someone's angry, someone's furious. Propitiate means you satisfy the person you pacify, you turn away the wrath. This is saying that Jesus Christ propitiated the wrath of God by shedding his blood. The wrath of God on sin, the wrath of God on you and me was coming down and Jesus Christ on the cross shed his blood and propitiated the wrath of God. Now that is very, un- a very what I just said is an incredibly unpopular doctrine. Uh, I could read, I don't have time to do, I could read all kinds of people who say that this, this is primitive, this is terrible, this is awful, a, a bloodthirsty God, a God who needs Jesus Christ's blood in order for him to forgive us. This is horrible, this is terrible. Uh, if there is a God, he has to be a God of love. We don't want a God of wrath, a God of violence. This is horrible. People hate this doctrine. So what do we have to say? I'd like you to believe it. I think it's one of the, I have to say it's the most practically precious doctrine that in my life over the years uh, of almost everything that I see here, it just, it, it astonishes me. It's changed my life. But here's what I think, in order to understand it, especially for contemporary people, we do recoil at it. It does bother us and it won't make sense to you. The, the doctrine that Christ shed blood propitiates the wrath of God, that doctrine will not make sense unless, I hate to do this, unless you understand four background truths. There's four truths that you have to understand if the doctrine of propitiation of the wrath of God is going to make sense. You know what those four are? I mean, it could go on a long time, but I don't want to. Um, Here's what the four are. Number one, you have to understand that great love makes you capable of great anger. That's the first thing. See, to say, oh, I don't want a lo- a, 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 an angry God, I want a loving God, makes no sense when you realize that if you really love someone, you can get very angry at them if they're destroying their lives. If you love something, you'll get angry at anything that's destroying it. Right? And that's the first thing you just have to understand. If God really loves the world he made and he really loves the people he made, then anything he sees that's destroying it, he's going to get angry at. Some years ago, I read an article by a woman who was wrestling with this idea of the wrath of God until she realized she had a friend who was really doing stupid things, really ruining her life, really being impulsive, really being selfish, dabbling with drugs, doing bad things. And she was furious with her friend, and she realized she was furious with her because she loved her so much that if she didn't love her so much, she wouldn't be anywhere near that angry. 
And then she thought about God and she said, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Did you hear that? The opposite of, you know, anger isn't the opposite of love, you know, because love makes you angry, angry at the evil or the sin that's ruining what you love. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. You don't want a God who's indifferent to evil and sin. And another uh, writer puts it like this, any God who's not angry at evil and injustice isn't worthy of my worship. And that leads to the second. The first truth you have to understand is great love makes you capable of anger, great anger. So to say I don't want an angry God, I want a loving God makes no sense. The second truth is that God is a judge And that God's anger is not crankiness, it's a settled judicial opposition to evil. If you you went into a a court of law and you saw a man uh, found guilty of robbery, you know, and uh, okay, now it's time for the sentence. What if the judge, at the time of the sentence, you know, the man gets up to receive a sentence, what if the judge jumped over the bench and started beating the man, I'm so angry at you, and hitting him with his gavel? I'm sure someday that's going to happen on television. You know, those television courts, you know, I'm sure that's going to happen. It'll help the ratings. You know, you'd look and say, oh, that's not the kind, <laughs> that does, that's not what you want. You, don't want. you don't want a judge who's just losing his temper. Nor do you want a judge who's indifferent. You don't want a judge who says, oh, well, yeah, you broke the law, but are you sorry? Yes, I'm sorry, judge. Well, then just try not to rob people in the future. That wouldn't be any good. What you want is the judge to have real indignation, real anger toward the injustice, toward the hurt that this man had done. But all that anger would be channeled (laughs) through enforcing the law. And, And God's, because God is a judge, remember what I just read, the guy said, if God is not a God who is angry at evil and injustice, he's not worthy of my worship. Do you want someday for everything to be put right in the world? Someday, the answer to that, the, the, I hope you say yes, that'll only happen if God's a judge. And God's wrath is simply his settled judicial opposition to evil, which is what you'd want. Not crankiness, not, you know, not getting, you know, not, not temper. The third thing you have to understand is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, which is, forgiveness is always a form of suffering. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, the guy who died opposing the Nazis, was a Lutheran minister opposing the Nazis in World War II, died for it. He wrote in one of his letters, forgiveness is a form of suffering. When I first read it, I thought, that's really weird, but no, it's not. If someone wrongs you, the, 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 most, the, the most satisfying thing if someone wrongs you is to go pay them back. They've hurt your reputation, then I'm going to kill their reputation, and that maybe I get my reputation back a little bit. You, ruin, you hurt my good name, I'll destroy your good name, and that'll help me. Or you made me unhappy, I'm going to make you even more unhappy, and that'll make me feel a little more satisfied. So, in other words, if someone wrongs you, one of the things you could do is pay them back. Really pay them back. And that'll be satisfying, in a sense. But as maybe you've heard us say this before, but if someone does evil to you and you pay them back, really vengefully pay them back, you know what happens? The evil wins. The evil wins. Because you become more cruel and mean. 
And probably who the perpetrator will probably not see the error of his or her ways, but will come back at you and, and then, you know, there'll be more fighting and everybody will get involved and people will take sides. Evil wins because you are paying back for the evil. You say, okay, well, what should I do? You should forgive, but get this. If someone wrongs you, it always is pretty satisfying to pay them back. If you forgive, it, you've, you're suffering. In other words, you're bearing the cost. They hurt your reputation and you forgive them for that, then you bear the loss to your reputation. They stole some happiness from you and you forgive them, then you bear that loss. When someone sins against you, it creates a debt. You can make them pay it or you can pay it, but the debt doesn't go away. One or the other. And if you pay it, if you forgive, forgiveness is always a form of suffering. And now you see something about the cross, do you not? Why does Jesus have to die? Why does he have to shed his blood? If we human beings have done wrong, and we have, and by the way, standing out in the rain, bareheaded is not going to deal with it. Most Christians, even pastors, struggle to talk about their faith in a way that applies the power of the gospel to change lives, especially in our skeptical culture. Tim Keller's book, Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism, is a guide for anyone who wants to become more effective in communicating about their faith, pastors and laypeople alike. Drawing on his years of experience, Dr. Keller will help you share your faith in a more engaging, passionate, and compassionate way from the pulpit or in the coffee shop. Preaching is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of Christ's love with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash give. Now here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. Well, then how can God, can he just overlook it? No, he's a judge and he has settled opposition to evil. That's his wrath. Well, can he just forgive? No, because if he's going to forgive us and much of our sin is against him, the only way he can forgive us is if he bears the cost instead of making us bear the cost. And when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he's bearing the cost for our sin. Ah, but somebody says, my goodness, that's, it just still seems so awful to the idea that Jesus Christ has to shed his blood to appease the wrath of the Father. In other words, the Father's angry at us and Jesus Christ has to go and appease. That's bloodthirsty, that's terrible. It's like the ancient gods uh, and uh, I just don't like it. But no, did you notice something? Look at the grammar, everybody. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. It doesn't say Christ presented his blood to propitiate the wrath of God. It says God, what does that mean? And here's where we get into that wonderful, mind-boggling doctrine that I will show you, though it always boggles the mind, it's incredibly useful. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity, everybody. And the, the doctrine of the propiti- that, that Jesus Christ propitiates the wrath of God through his shedding of his blood will not make sense unless you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is not that there's three gods up there who just happen to like each other. The Trinity is just one God, and inside that one God, that one God exists in three persons. And what that means, and it tells you right here, is not that the Father is angry, and therefore Jesus Christ comes and appeases the Father's anger. What it's actually saying is God himself in Jesus Christ goes to the cross and pays the price absorbs the suffering of divine justice himself. 
it is not just Jesus. It's when who goes to the cross? The God goes to the cross in Jesus Christ, which means God is substituting himself for us. John Stott, in his great book on the cross of Christ, says, here's what you have to understand. Sin is you substituting yourself for God, putting yourself where only God deserves to be, in charge of your life. Sin is you substituting yourself for God, putting yourself where only God deserves to be, in charge of your life. But salvation is God substituting himself for you putting himself where only you deserve to be on that cross, taking the penalty. See, there's an ancient story of, remember Agamemnon in the Iliad, Agamemnon, uh, the gods are angry at him and they won't give him fair winds to get to Troy, so he sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia, he slays her and, and, and sacrifices her, and then, oh, then the gods will give him fair winds, and some people say, see, that's just like Christian God, that's just like Christianity, bloodthirsty, terrible. No, it's the other way around. It's, it's the opposite of barbarism, it's the opposite of paganism. In that story, poor human beings have to put up the, the blood to a piece of cranky gods, but in the gospel, God himself comes and sheds his own blood. It says that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. God purchased the church with his own blood. God sheds his own blood to appease the wrath, the divine wrath, and pay the debt of justice and free us and redeem us. So if you understand those four things, suddenly you begin to realize the propitiation of the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus Christ is what redeems. It has to be that way. Any God who's not angry at injustice is not worthy to be worshipped. Any forgiveness entails suffering. And so God himself shed his own blood to purchase our salvation. Now, finally, what does that bring us to? Well, it tells us here, and that is several times it says, he justifies now those who have faith in Christ. The law requires faith. We maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We're justified without earning it. It's a gift now. Well, what is all this? What does that mean? When you and I hear the word justification, that Jesus died on the cross so we could be justified, almost always immediately we think of pardon and forgiveness. And that's fine. That's a wonderful thing. And it's part of it, sure. Jesus died on the cross so God could forgive us, yes. But justification is much more than forgiveness. Listen, everybody. Justification is much more than forgiveness. Marcus Lone, a Christian writer, puts it like this. He says, to speak forgiveness is to say, you may go. You have been let off of your penalty. But to speak of justification is to say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. See the difference? As wonderful as it is, forgiveness is negative, a negative. It's saying, you are no longer liable to penalty. You may go. You're free, no more penalty. But justification is the bestowal of a status. It's not just you no longer are liable. It's a bestowal of a new status with incredible rights and privileges and benefits attached to it. You may come, and now you may be in my presence. How do we understand this? Well, here's how we understand it. Some years ago, I was watching a a TV show that was a detective show, and one particular episode was about a, an old man in his 80s, broken down. He's an ex-Marine, 
And uh, it turns out for the show, uh, this is a fiction piece, by the way, uh, it turns out that the man was charged with allegedly doing some crime when he was a Marine. And so the military police were out to find him, and they were trying to track him down, they were trying to find him. And finally, a scene comes where they, they, they track him down, they find him, and they come up to him. And these two great big MPs, military police, are looking down at him, and they're snarling, and they're yelling at him, you know, stay, you know, put out your hand, you know, hands up. You know, and they get out their handcuffs, and they're ready to, uh, uh, this poor broken down old man, they're ready to take him into custody. But the little old man has a friend next to him, and the, and the friend reaches over, pulls aside the man's tie, opens the top button, and shows what he's wearing underneath. And you know what it is? That for the story's sake, that years ago on the field of battle in World War II, he had done an act of incredible bravery, and as they, he pulls this aside, the military police see that he's wearing the Congressional Medal of Honor. And suddenly, their faces change, their posture changes, they drop their handcuffs, and they... They, you know, they snap to attention and they salute. It's very moving and very poignant and it makes perfect sense. What were they, what were they saluting? Not really the man. Maybe, I mean, it doesn't matter to them. Was he a criminal? Was he? It doesn't matter. What are they saluting? They're saluting. They are honoring the medal because the medal represents all the people who had shed their blood on the field of battle for decades and centuries for our freedom. Yeah, our freedom, yes. How so? Ever see the, uh, the uh, series, The Man in the High Castle? It's a, a science fiction theory uh, series about what would have happened if in World War II we'd lost. What would have happened if the, the opponents, the enemy, had gotten the atomic bomb first, which they could have. And what would have happened if they dropped an atomic bomb on Los Angeles and on, on New York? What would have happened? That could have happened. We would have lost our freedom. So the people who are out there fighting, shedding their blood, heroically, what were they doing? They were doing it for us. They were doing it to purchase our freedom. And that medal represented all that honor, all that heroism, all that glory. And that's why they weren't saluting him. They were saluting the medal, which was on his on his chest and they were giving him that kind of deference and that kind of honor because, they, because he had that medal on his chest now think about this when Jesus Christ went to the cross everything about the crucifixion had the trappings of shame he was stripped naked you don't have to execute somebody naked but he was stripped naked it was a mark of shame it was a way of shaming him he was, uh, he was crucified outside the gate. He was crucified at Calvary, Golgotha, dump, you know, a, a, a garbage dump. He was experiencing the ignominy. He was taking the dishonor. He was taking the shame that we deserve. Oh, but wait a minute. Think about it for a second. He had the ultimate honor in the universe, but he voluntarily gave it up and came and went to the cross. But if anything, that makes him worthy of greater honor than he had before, if that's possible. Or he had this incredible glory, but he emptied himself of his glory. And he became small, and he became killable and vulnerable. And, and, and he lost all of his glory, and he took on the shame. But if anything, if anything, that makes him worthy of greater glory, if that's possible. 
What does Jesus Christ deserve? What kind of award? What kind of medal does he deserve? Because on that battlefield, he shed his blood. Look at that heroism. Look at that incredible bravery. Look what he faced. What kind of medal does he deserve for that heroism, for that shedding of his blood, for our freedom? What does he deserve? I don't know. But here's the gospel, everybody. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not just that your sins are put on him and your shame is put on him, but that his righteousness, his glory, everything he deserves, as it were, is pinned on you. All of his medals are pinned on you. It's not just that he's treated as we deserve, so he takes our penalty, but then in Christ we are treated as he deserves. All those medals, all those awards are pinned on us, and God salutes, and the universe salutes in him. That's what it means when it says we are righteous in him. This is the reason why Richard Hooker, the great Anglican uh, writer from the 18th century put it like this in describing the doctrine of justification by faith. Listen to this. He says, let it be counted as folly or frenzy or fury whatsoever. This is our comfort and wisdom and we care for no knowledge in the world but this, that God has made himself our sin that we might be made his righteousness. We are in the sight of God the Father as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted as folly or frenzy or fury whatsoever. This is the only thing in the world. This knowledge, I care for nothing else in the world but to know this, that God made himself sin so we could be made his righteousness. That when God looks at me, when God the Father looks at me, he sees me in Jesus Christ. And I am an absolute beauty to him. Justification. Hmm? Now listen. Two implications and a story, and we're done. The first implication is, what does it mean to be a Christian? When I ask people, are you a Christian? Sometimes they say, I'm trying. It's a little bit like me asking, are you married or are you single? And you say, well, I'm trying to be married. Well, in one sense, maybe, okay, I'm after somebody, and I don't, she hasn't said yes. Maybe that's what you mean. But, I mean, honestly, if, if, if I say, are you married or not, you say, well, look, Yes or no, right? I mean, you either had a marriage, a wedding service, there were vows, there was some minister of justice of the peace or not. You know, there's one second in which you're, you're not married and there's another second in which you are. It's not a process. And the same way, to become a Christian, yes, of course we want to be like Jesus in a certain sense we're all trying to be Christians. But you either are a Christian or you aren't. You're either justified or you're not. You either have had this incredible status bestowed on you, the medals have been pinned on you and your shame's been put on him or it hasn't been. It's one or the other. You understand that. Because if you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. But here's the other thing. If you do understand it, and if you make this yours, some years ago, in fact, I know how many years ago, it was right at around the time of the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, I was at a men's retreat. And there was a man there who got up, and he had been converted about three years before at that retreat, I think. So he, he, I mean, it was an annual retreat. So three years before. So he gets up at this retreat, 2008, 2009. And this is what he said. He said, he says, I work in a field that used to be called wealth management, but now it's more better to be called wealth survival. And he said, this year I have lost an enormous amount of money. And I'm here to tell you that I've never been happier in my life. 
If the Great Recession had happened two years ago, when my justification was still in my performance, I know where the vodka bottle is and I would have driven myself right into the ground. Ah, but what changed, you see? His career was, was, just, a, it was just a job now. It wasn't his justification. <laughs> what was his justification now? It's Jesus' justification. In a sense, he was saying what Paul says in Galatians, a little bit later in Galatians, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Oh. May I never boast. You see, where is boasting? It is excluded. Ah, but not if you boast in Jesus Christ. That is to say, if you say, my identity is in him, my justification is in him, not in anything else. You know what that means. The world is crucified to you and you to the world. Who cares what people think? Who cares what kind of, how you did in your portfolio this year? It's not your justification anymore. See? The only two eyes in the universe whose opinion counts looks at you in Jesus Christ and sees you as more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. So who cares? The world is just... Look, that kind of identity... That kind of imperviousness to ups and downs, that kind of ballast, that kind of buoyancy, that kind of joy can be yours if you understand the gospel words, redemption, propitiation, justification. Look, people are very, very, in this, especially in a place like New York, people are incredibly offended by the idea that you've got to be saved through the blood of Jesus. In 1955, um, Billy Graham uh, went to Cambridge and to preach in evenings at Great St. Mary's at the Cambridge University of Cambridge. Before he got there, there was a lot of uh, indignation on the part of people. In the London Times there were articles, there were, there were, pardon me, there were letters saying, how can this American fundamentalist come and speak to our best and brightest about the blood of Jesus, that, you know, and, and, which is very offensive. We don't believe in that. Our best and brightest aren't going to be in any way impressed by this particular preacher. So Billy Graham was a bit intimidated, by the way. You can read about this in the biography. He was a bit intimidated by it. So the first few couple nights he was preaching there, he quoted a lot of existentialist philosophers and intellectuals and things like that. And that's not, that's not Billy Graham. And he, got, he realized he just wasn't getting any traction with the, with the listeners. And he got down on his knees and says, tonight, Lord, I'm going to preach the cross. I'm just going to preach the cross. And this is an account by somebody who was there. He says, I'll never forget that night. That was Wednesday night at Green St. Mary's in, in uh, Cambridge. He says, I, in a t- I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge sitting on my one side, another faculty member sitting on the other. These were good men, but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. But dear Billy, that night got up and began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice. The blood was just flowing all over, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. Both my neighbors, these faculty members, were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ back when the student body was only 8,000 people. 
Um, this man says, I remember many years later meeting a young man who was a minister, a young minister, and uh, he asked, uh, where, where did Christian things begin with you? He says, oh, Cambridge, 1955. Really, when? Wednesday night, last night of Billy Graham. Well, how did it happen? And he said, all I remember is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's that night for the first time in my life thinking, Christ really died for me. There's power in the blood. Power for you. Let's pray. So, Father, these great gospel words, show us what they mean. Lord, they can save us, they can change us if we understand and grasp what you're offering us in them. And those of us who have, we can spend the rest of our lives exploring them, and that's what we've done tonight. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the propitiation. And thank you for our justification. Make us the kind of people who live in accordance with these great truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching. We pray that it challenged you and encouraged you. You can find more resources from Tim Keller at gospelandlife.com. Just subscribe to the Gospel and Life newsletter to receive free articles, sermons, devotionals, and other resources. Again, it's all at gospelandlife.com. You can also stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. This month's sermons were recorded in 2009 and 2016. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.